So, Father, that is our prayer, that you might purify our hearts, that you might set us apart to be holy, ready to do your will. It is in our Lord's name we ask this. Amen. So, a church in action. Acts, the series we're going through in Acts. And this morning's reading describes the church's um, attitude towards personal possessions. And it breaks into quite two clear parts, our reading. I think we'll agree. We have that latter part of chapter 4, which commences by describing the church as a group of believers who were one in heart and mind and sharing everything they had. And then it's immediately followed by Acts chapter 5, which paints a rather different picture, doesn't it, of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, who maybe seek to imitate such behaviour, but clearly have a very, another personal agenda behind that, which requires lies and deceit to support it. It's a very black and white sort of contrast we have with these two passages. And it reminds us, doesn't it, that you know, the church can move very quickly between these two. So and we need to be very attentive to that. I find actually both pieces quite challenging. Right? The first one is it's a wonderful thing to look to, but it certainly challenges my own, sometimes I see as my own rather measured, calculating way of doing things in church to the very open, hearted way that that early church seemed to be living and expressing their lives and obviously sharing uh, their belongings amongst one another. Um, and I'm also challenged by the second passage because I go, oh, ow, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> so they are, they're tricky. And, and it's, I think it's, it's instructive just to notice that they're lying beside each other, alongside each other. They're like bedfellows in that sense. But we need to remember whenever we look at God's word, especially when we look at God's word and we see a passage we don't really like a great deal, uh, but we need to make sure it, it's, it's above us. I, I always do this personally and privately sometimes. There's times with God's word, I physically do this. Because I need to remind myself that it's my lack of understanding. It's not a deficiency in God's word. It doesn't fit for my modern outlook. All right? So I personally do that occasionally, just as a way of reminding myself. Um, but it isn't, isn't good, because we do tend to sometimes skip passages we don't like. We'll you know, that, you know, move on quickly. Uh, but let's, let's see what we get out of it. Also, I chose that Psalm 24 as our call to worship um, because it, had an echo, it echoed for me. It was something similar about um, the Acts reading. And let me do, just quickly try and explain why. The opening verses of the, Acts, of the Psalm, the earth is the Lord, everything in it, um, the world and all who live in it. Uh, just reminds us, once again, it's like the early church. They just recognised God as a sovereign you know, owner of all that they had anyway, and therefore they shared what they had amongst them. I think it, just, they, it reminds us that ultimately we, everything we possess is God's, and as I said earlier, rather than thinking of ourselves as owners, we should maybe think of ourselves as stewards. You know, whatever we have physically in this world, we only have for a season. We didn't come with it, and we won't go with it. So it's literally, in that sense, a transient ownership. And if you ever need reminding of that, and you might want to just read Matthew 25, 14, Jesus teaching on the, 
the, the, uh, the parable of the talents and people using what they've been lent, basically. And if the reason why in my one, I've only got one slide this morning. I, I don't only use other slides. I, I, I have no imagination on this today, so we end up one slide. So you're going to look at this for the next 15, 20 minutes. But the reason I put personal possessions question mark is, is, is liberal. Is there such a thing? Is it just a misnomer for a Christian to ever really consider a possession to be personal? And, and again, I'm jumping about here, but again, back to that Psalm 24. Um, it's, I've noticed the following next verses in, in Psalm 24 uh, remind us that uh, God is holy and that no one can stand before him unless they have clean hands. So we have this sort of movement between um, you know, God's ownership of things but also recognising God is holy. God is profoundly holy and I think always we need to take care that we don't get too casual and careless in our relationship we have with him, even in Christ. I think the early church understood this. A little bit later in Acts, in chapter 9, we can read that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria, enjoyed a time of peace, and it was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, but they all lived in the fear of the Lord, the scripture says. So there's a sense of awe and wonder at God and not an over-familiarity. And I think this morning's reading in Acts also reminds us that we need to just always be on our guard, even especially when things look like they're going well. You know, so you've got these two passages sitting side by side. Warren Wearsby entitles this section in his commentary. He says, Beware the serpent. He said, Satan might have failed completely in his attempt to silence the witness of the church. However, he is an enemy that never gives up. He simply changes his tactic, his strategy. His first approach was to attack the church from the outside, hoping that the arrests and the threats would frighten the leaders, get rid of them and disperse the believers. When that fails, Satan moves in to attack the church from the inside out. He uses the fellowship itself to destroy itself. And I think that we see something of that in this reading. So I'm going to look at it in two parts. One is the first part, uh, which is the end of chapter 4 and the second one in the beginning of chapter 5. So at Pentecost, the believers had prayed and God's Spirit was to come and he filled them and gave them power to go out and preach the word. And that event obviously was clearly fulfilling the promise that Jesus had made to his disciples while he was still in his earthly life and ministry where he said in John Gospel, I will ask the Father... He will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because he neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him and he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes we forget that it's the Holy Spirit. You know, it's recognition of the holiness of God and the presence of God there. And when we go back into that record of, of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we can see that one of the major characteristics of this new spirit-filled church was its sense of unity, a God-given spiritual unity, not a man-made organisation, uniformity. The spirit of the church is a living organism and that life comes through the living Holy Spirit. Any church has to be organised, 
all right, just as any organism is organized. But I think if organization starts to inhibit the spiritual life and heart and ministry of the church, something has gone really badly wrong. The church has just become a religious institution, existing, just trying to maintain itself. A church needs to always be spirit-led, not management-led. When the Holy Spirit is at work, God's people will be united, gathered together in that spirit, in their fellowship, in their worship, in their giving, and in their service. They will belong to one another as in a family, God's family. And we read that in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his, any of his possessions were his own, and they shared everything they had. I think one piece of evidence of the unity of the church at that time was the way they sacrificed for and shared with one another. They were always on the lookout for one another. With the Holy Spirit at work amongst them, that service, that giving, was a, was a source of blessing, not burden. But whatever the individual believers chose to do in that early church was still a voluntary act. It was an act motivated by love, not by law, not by command. Again, we read in verse 34, there were no needy persons among them, from a t for, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everybody who had need. It doesn't say every believer sold their goods, but some did and brought that money to the apostles. It was a free will offering. And it just indicates that some members from time to time sold their property as they denoted into the common treasury. And as the assembly of the church had need, the spirit had moved amongst them for that need. And it was met by different people being open to the spirit's leading. Giving in this view of the church is a movement of grace and faith in the believer's heart as I say not some sort of legal response to a legal demand you know it's coming from the inside out it's not me just trying to go well someone says I should give and therefore I'm going to give all right it's not a, it's not that way around I think the early church's spirit of sacrifice and generosity is worthy of our emulation right up to the present day but I don't think we need to copy that practice, as it were. And someone, sometimes you could read this, this verse and say, well, we all just sell our houses, don't we? Uh, but I don't think that's what the scripture is saying. The principles of Christian giving are outlined in more depth, actually, in Paul's letters in 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and chapter 9. And nowhere does it say things like, you've got to bring your money and lay it at the pastor's feet, for example. 2 Corinthians, chapter 9 and verse 7 each man and woman should give what they have decided in their heart to give. Nice and clear, isn't it? Not reluctantly, but not under compulsion. But God loves a cheerful giver. The willing, the cheerful giving. And it's demonstrated for us in this passage by Barnabas, who comes in. Barnabas, who's, who's a Levite, uh, called Joseph from Cyprus. And he sold a field and brings the money 
to the apostles' feet. And Luke introduces Barnabas here in Acts. This is the first uh, sight we have of Barnabas. He's a man who becomes very important in, as we go through Acts. He has a very important ministry in the early church. He's mentioned at least 25 times that I could find in, in the book. But it's, it's lovely how Luke introduces him here just as a, a willing, cheerful giver. Not as anybody important or significant, just someone who is willing to respond to the Spirit and come with open-hearted, open-handed generosity, seeking to respond to what, how they understand God's work is being worked out amongst them. And the early church really looked upon themselves as a family, and they lived like a family. And if you think about your families, if in a family one member uh, has more possessions than another and there's need in the family, it's only natural within a family for someone to help, help out their brother or sister. It should be only natural in a family to share our possessions. If you think of the word private property, which is a common you know, worldly term, can we have private property in a family setting? Isn't it family property in a family setting? But I think Luke also introduces Barnabas here as a, as a contrast to what's going to happen in a minute with Ananias and Sapphira. In these last verses of chapter 4, we see a church filled by the Spirit, moved by the Spirit, joined together by the Spirit, and following the prompting and the leading of the Spirit. And that draws them into a unity, not a unity around themselves, but a unity around the Spirit. One body, a living body. I think ultimately the church in these verses in chapter 4 is not so much one demonstrating generosity, which you could have looked at it as being, but I think it's much more, far more importantly one that is practicing their God-given unity and sense of identity and belonging, who they are. And I think it may be even this that attracts Satan's attention for what is then going to come up next. If that, if that unity, that spirit uh, of being together that Satan hates. So turning now to the second part and the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and just to read the first couple of verses to you again. A man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, though, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Peter said to him, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so, so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. Ananias' name means God is gracious. But clearly he seemed to have forgotten that God was also holy. Sapphira means beautiful, apparently. But her heart was shown in this narrative to be sort of deformed by the sin of deceit. We're very naturally shocked when we go on to read that God took the lives of these two people, apparently because they just lied about their church giving. There must be something far more serious going on underneath. As Peter has said in verse 4, the property they owned was theirs, the money they got from it was theirs, their desire to keep some of it back even is not, was not a sin in itself. 
But Ananias and Sapphira's sin was that of deceit. A deceit that also led them into hypocrisy. A lie. Standing there in the church, being, looking as though they should be one thing and knowing that they were another. This is a church in which the Spirit has so powerfully drawn them together and gathered them. Hypocrisy simply means wearing a mask, playing a role, being the actor, pretending to be what we are not. It's a superficial thing, isn't it? I mean, Jesus regularly railed against the religious elite of his day for their hypocrisy, their willingness to make it all look good on the outside, but knowing that they were just rotten to the core within. And we also need to be attentive to this as Christians. It is something we can also fall into, especially after being Christians for a number of years. We can sometimes fall into uh, keeping up a good face, but it becomes more and more hypocritical. You know, our faith is a living faith, and we need to actually return to that living faith sometimes and recognize sometimes some of our practices have become hypocritical. But lying, deceit, destroys trust and undermines unity. We might think that others don't see it, but God always does, and it has significant spiritual implications. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira felt they wanted to compete with Barnabas, with his very generous and free example. Maybe underneath this story there's an underlying sense of spiritual pride or competition which motivated their actions. Clearly they wanted to be seen as generous beneficiaries by the church, whilst at the same time wanting to keep part of the money for themselves. But instead of acting honestly and openly, they acted dishonestly. And as Peter said to them, you haven't just lied to men, but you have lied to God. I think it's a good reminder actually in this story how Satan can often take what was originally intended as a good act and somehow twist it and turn it destructively for his purposes. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan himself, if he so chooses, can masquerade as an angel of light. Their sin was lying, and as Peter had said, Satan is the very father of lies and has so filled their hearts that they were not only willing to lie to the church, to their brothers and sisters, and breaking that unity, but they were lying to God himself. And I think the narrative is a timely reminder that God still judges sin severely, even in the beginning of this new salvation history, which we call the New Testament. right. It's no longer underwritten by law, but by grace and faith, that sin remains sin. And in God's holy face, it's a total anathema. I think it's recorded here as a reminder for us, for future generations, for us to reflect upon. But if we think about why lying is such a serious offence to God, why was this deception, which seems to have not really hurt anybody in particular, so drastically disciplined by God? I think the answer comes down to the fact that the church is founded on God's truth. And lying and deception are the exact opposite of that, anti-truth. Lying is an attack on truth. 
and for this reason it is one of the primary means of attack employed by Satan, both recorded in scripture, but we can see it often in the world in which we live. To tolerate even the smallest deception is to open the door to a greater danger. Attacks on the unity of the church, the body of the church, which in time undermine the whole body. As I said before, if Satan cannot defeat the church by attacking from the outside, he often seems to do so by coming and doing so from the inside. And sometimes that's the hardest thing for us to recognise, and it's even harder for us sometimes to accept. But it is through the lives of our, our own lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters that Satan can sometimes seek to pull the church apart. We must all be on our guard. None of us are immune from being used in such destructive ways. And it's worth remembering as well that the spiritual armour that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 is a warning that he wrote to God's people, not to unbelievers, because it is us who are in greatest danger in some ways of being used by Satan to destroy the church. So the four key points, I suppose, to close and just try and draw out of it. The first one is the unity of the spirit in the church is precious in God's sight, hated by Satan, but precious. It is a unity, a living unity of the spirit that gathers the church together and obviously also sends that church back into the world in which we all live. But Satan hates the church, he hates God's work, he hates that unity, that spirit of unity. He hates your trust and faith in Jesus. He is the father of lies. We must be on our guard. And also that we are to set an example here, that we set an example here, that even in this New Testament period, we come to God, as we come to God in Christ, we must never allow ourselves to be fooled into thinking that sin doesn't matter. It does, and it clearly did in this situation. And serious sins so often start out in very small, very subtle little waves, and they can grow to destroy great things. The grace we've received in Christ must never, never, never be a pretext for sin. And then finally, just as we are a church, we are a family, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, joined by the Spirit, families look out for one another. <coughs> families watch over one another. Families provide for one another. We love God, but we're called also to love our neighbour. Not holding tightly to what we don't really possess at the end of the day anyway, but being willing with grace and love to share it as we feel led in this world. May we go and do likewise. Amen. <clears throat>